Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is actually Sunday, uh, May 8th, but uh, I tried to record this yesterday. I got all screwed up. Don't want to get into it. So it's a little bit late this week. Uh, so we'll just have to bear with me on that. The disclaimer, anything that you see or hear on this video or podcast is not to be taken as investment advice. This is for informational purposes only. I am not a financial advisor. I am not authorized to give you individual investment advice. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, so lots of things happening in the economy, lots of things happening in the resource markets, in the financial markets. One of the things I want to say is, you know, we have a lot of information coming at us. A lot of things are happening. You know, Federal Reserve's raising rates. This is happening. That's happening. And I, I try not to get bogged down in all these things. Um, I try to focus on the longer term trends. And this is why, you know, we've shown this chart or versions of this type of chart before. This is an updated one from Crestcat Capital off of Twitter this week. And what's it showing? It's a Goldman Sachs Commodity Index. Uh, versus the S&P 500. And it goes back to, you know, 1970. And it shows you times when um, we've had uh, bull markets and commodities versus uh, equities. And so, you know, this thing has a numerator and a denominator. So you could be in a situation where commodities go up, and the S&P goes down, and this thing will, you know, fly high. Uh, kind of like right here back in uh, 2008. Uh, but you could also have a scenario where the stock market goes down and commodities or resources go down less, and this can still go up. So it's all, it's a rel it's relative, right? That's what you're looking at. But what I think is interesting, as we've pointed out before, you know, we got to one of the lowest uh, valuations of commodities versus equities uh, since I think the depression or something crazy, but let's just go back to 1970. And so, you know, you see that we're coming out of this thing and where the prices are now. And we're saying, you know, man, are these things overbought? Is this the end? And I just like to point this out because it gives you some perspective that, you know, we actually, in my view, have a long way to go. I think that, you know, if you look at what the prices of various resources are now today in uh, May of 2022, and then what they're going to be, you know, in May, you know, 2029 or 2030, I think you're going to be substantially higher for many reasons that we've discussed in the past. But the thing I want to remind you of and caution you of is, you know, even if you have a multi-year or decade-long uh, price appreciation in resources, uh, just because of the long length of the cycles, the investment um, cycles, and how long it takes to bring new resources on board, once you do get prices high enough to stimulate investment. Um, there can be along the way, you know, over that 10 years, you can have a couple of cyclical declines of six months to a year or longer, where prices go down, but you're still in that secular trend that ends, you know, from that lower left to that upper right. And so I'm not, I don't want to discount that it's not a one way shot where you just buy this and forget it, you know, buy and then come back in five or 10 years and you're good. Um, I think you could have got away with that if you bought into these resources at the bottom of the pandemic uh, crash, then you don't care because you've bought things so cheap that uh, 
uh, if, if you do get a 30 to 50% drawdown, which I think is possible in the next, you know, with some of these commodities and resources stocks over the next year or so, um, uh, I do think that is a possibility. Let's not discount the fact that, you know, a lot of tailwinds that we had are now turning into headwinds. You know, I talked about, if you've been following for a while, you remember like over a year ago, I, I talked about uh, the, the, the Council for Foreign Relations has a good tool that shows the whole world, that shows which countries are tightening monetary policy and which were um, uh, in a loose mode. And we were at like historic amounts of looseness of monetary policy around the world. I mean, it was like crap going through a goose. And that was because of the pandemic. That was even before the pandemic, just because of all the debt and all the things that were going on in these economies. So we had this tailwind of monetary policy behind us, right? And then we went into the um, pandemic. And then, you know, we already had the monetary policy that was going in the right direction, helping us. And then we had the physical stimulus that came where the governments around the world just put money into people's accounts, put money directly into the economy. And this stimulated a lot of demand and forced prices up. So um, that's now reversing and we have to take that into account. I don't know if it's going to be sufficient to overcome the supply demand dynamics in many of these commodities. I would suggest to you in the short term, monetary policy can overwhelm supply and demand fundamentals. That's why you know, I talked about in the last newsletter uh, of the Actionable Intelligence Alert newsletter, some of the tools that I use to follow uh, and to tell me um, when commodity prices are weakening and, and, and why. You know, we are, as we raise rates, you know, uh, it, you know, we're not the only country, you know, Great Britain's raising rates, Australia, um, obviously the Europeans and Japanese are got their still pedal to the metal. I mean, they still have negative rates in Europe. I talked about this last week, I believe. But, you know, monetary policy uh, and sediment, uh, as Stan Druckenmiller said, uh, have a big effect on what markets do in the short term, the medium term. So I think long term, the fundamentals of the lack of investment are still there. And I think that, you know, you know, I have this view, you know, the Federal Reserve is following the market, you know, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, they don't really lead monetary policy anymore. They just kind of follow what the market does. And rates were already moving higher in the market on treasuries and like 30 year mortgages and stuff. So, you know, with that happening and fiscal tight in the US going down from 18% of GDP to something like six or 7% you're already seeing this tightening. So we were already in a tightening cycle and we've really, you know, I'm not sure, you know, I showed the chart last week, you know, every one of these tightening cycles ends up being at a lower level than the previous one. So, you know, you topped out at 6% and then the next cycle is up to three and then two and a half. So I'm not sure how high they think they can go with these rates. As a matter of fact, I don't think they want to go that high. I think the hope is, is that, you know, all this talk about, you know, inflation now has become a political issue in the country. We have an election coming up. And so that seems to be the main issue. And so they're raising rates, trying to tighten liquidity, although they're not doing a good job on that. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. But what I'm trying to tell you is, is that, you know, we could be in a situation where some of these resources, um, some of these commodities back off in price over the short term, six months to a year. So 
Uh, just keep that in mind if you're following along in the newsletter, if you're contemplating buying it. Um, you know, I said that we should sell our gold stocks. Why? I mean, with inflation at 40-year highs, with all these things, with a war happening, basically the outbreak of World War III, if you will, and gold can't move substantially higher. I mean, I, 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 I can find better things to do with my money. I just, I, if that doesn't make gold, gold move higher and gold stocks move higher, I don't know what will. And so uh, just to clarify, because I got a lot of feedback on the email, the free email I sent out uh, last week, excuse me. I got a frog in my throat. Um, I, I just don't see a lot of upside there. I don't know what's going to get those stocks moving. And so I do hold gold and silver bullion as insurance. I'm not against doing that. I think everybody should have some allocation to physical metals that they control as an insurance policy, just like you have auto insurance or fire insurance. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't hope your car house burns down, but you're grateful that you have insurance if it does. And so you hold it, even though it's kind of an expense. So uh, I think I got I got a lot of feedback on that. And people did, you know, look, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm not a financial advisor. If you have a view that you think gold stocks are moving higher, then by all means, you should do what you think is correct. I'm just telling you that, you know, I can't see a catalyst that moves it higher because I actually think um, inflation is going to back off um, uh, as we go through this year. Uh, just because of the base effects and the year-over-year -year comparisons. So um, long story short, I don't want to get too far into economic analysis. I mean, people that have PhDs can't even get it right. But what I do want to caution you is, is that <clears throat> although we can have a secular bull market over a long span of a decade or so, it's very typical to have, and you can even see it in some of these charts, you know, this move to uh, from like 2000, this is what the Chinese uh, uh, thing you see several times we have these pretty decent pullbacks, okay? And, uh, but you end up here uh, on the peak. So, I mean, when it pulls back right here, do you sell them? Do you say it's over with? I don't know. I don't know the circumstance of what was going on at that period of time, but I'm just showing you the volatility that's there. And if you keep your eye on the prize that we have fundamental issues that are not gonna be overcome, but yet in the short term, we can have economic and monetary issues that cause us to have a, pull back inside of a larger bullish trend. So I just wanted to point that out. So this is interesting, you know, diesel now is, there's diesel shortages all over the world. Why is this important? Why do we care? Why is it happening? Well, I mean, we're in World War III now and uh, diesel is the fuel that basically powers the economy, right? Trucking, mining equipment, agriculture equipment, all of this stuff is powered by diesel, right? And, you know, when you went through the pandemic, you already had a decline in refining capacity that happened during that time. And now you layer on the sanctions and all the things that are happening and the discombobulations in the supply chain of what was working efficiently in the past with Russia, people self-imposing embargoes and now uh, countries in Europe talking about embargoes. And so you have this demand for a product and you've discombobulated the supply chain. And so you have these blowout prices on diesel. And I mean, this is kind of concerning. Why? Because, you know, those prices, if truckers can't make money 
hauling goods at you know six dollar a gallon, five dollar a gallon diesel. I mean, these trucks get five miles to the gallon, guys. So it's a dollar a mile, okay? And if you can't recover that, plus your truck payment, insurance, taxes, fees, and make a profit for yourself, you're going to shut down. Or prices to haul the goods need to increase sufficiently to compensate. <coughs> Excuse me. And so we're not seeing that in many cases. And so this is why this could be a problem, right? Just like, you know, uh, we're seeing the same thing in jet fuel. And so... Typically, when markets, as you guys well know, when things spike like this, they don't just go up and stay up. I, I think it, this gets resolved, but how much damage does it do uh, before it does resolve? That's the question. And then you have more stupidity coming out of certain countries like the EU about now talking about bans on, you know, basically all fuels from, uh, from Russia. So we have to see how this develops because all, you know, this is why you're seeing a big spike in rates and like uh, product tankers right now because they're having to move this product around from places where it is being refined to places where it's in demand where you typically didn't do that. I mean, all of these supply chains, guys, when we had a global, you know, economy with no wars going on and people were getting along and all that, everything was fine-tuned to be as efficient as possible. Now you throw sand into the gears with all these sanctions and self-sanctioning and monkey business going on about who, who you can buy stuff from and all this stuff, it takes a while for this stuff to unwind and fix itself. And so you see, you know, uh, uh, the effect here with the pricing of diesel, which is a concern. I thought this was interesting. You know, one of the things with the oil price we were talking about is the potential when would demand destruction start? And you won't see it so far, I think, uh, in the developed world first, but in the developing world in Nigeria, which is a OPEC member and exports oil. But the refining capacity in Nigeria is not sufficient to supply the products that Nigeria needs. So what are they talking about? A lot of the airlines in Nigeria now are threatening to shut down uh, flights inside the country on Monday, starting Monday, because the price of jet fuel is so high they can't make any money. So Nigeria to stop domestic flights over fuel costs and shortages. Now links to uh, all these articles in the show notes. Nigeria will become the first nation to ground flights on Monday as surging prices for aviation fuel make business unprofitable. Airline operators quote, will discontinue operations nationwide unquote. Until further notice, their union said in a statement, it's the latest sign of the widespread impact that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is having. The war has caused massive disruption to energy markets with Russian feedstocks used to produce jet fuel and diesel becoming untouchable. We just talked about that for many parts of the world. China has also cut its oil product export quota limiting supplies. Again, more discombobulations. The loss of 3.2 million barrels a day of refining capacity in the pandemic years also doesn't help. So we talked about those in the previous slide, but now you're starting to see where it's really starting to bite in these countries that don't have a lot of margin for these price increases, like these developing countries. And then I put in here also, you know, this summer global jet fuel demand is set to rise by more than a third as air travel ramps up, surpassing 6 million barrels a day, according to the latest forecast from Bloomberg. You know, I don't know anybody at this point in time that doesn't have a trip scheduled, isn't going to go somewhere and do something. I mean, if you haven't made your reservations or plans, I mean, you're not going to get a spot. So I think I think things are going to surprise to the upside on the oil price and these products prices over the next through the summer. 
that's my expectation. It's conceivable. I just did an interview with uh, another guy about this, uh, but it's, I said the same thing. I mean, my forecasting, what I'm looking at is, you know, we could really see a blowout uh, on the oil price. I don't know, taking us up to, you know, 150 easily dollars a barrel. You know, I think at some point, the high cost of these fuels uh, causes the economy, you know, to shut down or to have an issue. I mean, if you look back to 2008, when the oil price went to 147 or whatever it topped out, I believe that was the real catalyst to kick off the great financial crisis. It wasn't necessarily the real estate market. The real estate market was poised to fall. But once the oil price became so high and nutted the economy up, then you went into a recession. People couldn't service those ridiculous debts. Then you had this cascading effect. I'm not sure we'll see the same thing this time, but I do think that you get to an oil price that's uh, sufficiently high, you're going to see tremendous damage done to economies in the emerging markets, developing world. And uh, a lot of people in the West will suck it up, I think. But at some point, there is a line where um, you, the economy just cannot function with these fuel prices. And, you know, the thing I like to point out to people is to remind people is that, you know, everything is a derivative of energy, like we said before. And so as the energy price goes up, you know, all of these derivatives prices go up too. the price to farm, the price to mine, the price to travel, the price to move goods, all of these things go up. And so these all, you know, kind of help force prices up. And if you're spending more money on gasoline or fuel or whatever, that's less disposable income you're going to spend at Target or going on trips or whatever you were doing, less disposable income. And, <clears throat> excuse me, considering that the U.S. economy is like something like 80% consumer based, this is a problem. So you can see how this uh, second order effects work and, and things like that. So I don't know what the price is. You know, if you say that it's $150 a barrel, like the 2008 top, well, if you inflation adjust that, you're talking 220 a barrel. I mean, I can't envision, I mean, what would gasoline and diesel be at 220 a barrel? I mean, 10 bucks a gallon? I don't know, something crazy. I, I don't see how the US economy or European economies function with oil prices that high, but uh, uh, I think we're gonna find out. And so <clears throat> we saw this this week where the Biden administration plans to seek bids this fall to buy 60 million barrels of crude oil as the first step in a years long process aimed at replenishing America's shrinking emergency oil reserve, an energy department official told CNN. And I put here, do Americans still think these people are competent? So we're drawing down the SPR currently as a political tool to try to hold the oil price down, energy prices down in an election year. And yet we have the same administration that's doing that talking about getting bids to rebuild the SPR. Now, I guess maybe you could say, well, John, that makes sense because if oil prices drop, you know, to $50 a barrel, it makes sense to refill it. I guess so, but why are we emptying it in the first place if it's just for political reasons? That's there for an emergency. I just don't think that, you know, this idea that these masters of the universe have it all figured out and this is all deliberate and they're turning the dials and moving the levers and pushing the buttons in the right sequence to bring about this, you know, economic crash so that they can implement the Great Reset. I don't think they're that smart. I don't think that you can central plan. I mean, the Soviets had Goss plan and you saw how that worked out. 
I mean, we have an election coming up in the United States, and I, I just don't think that uh, I think it's going to be horrendous losses. And people are aggravated. I mean, this whole Western political class to me is incompetent. I don't see it as a master plan to usher in this new world order or whatever you want to call it. I just see a lot of stupidity. I see a lot of inability to connect dots and do pattern recognition and to see the consequences of decisions. That's what I see. I could be wrong though. So here we go again. <clears throat> we talked about it last week. Indonesia was banning palm oil exports. Russia, you know, has already banned wheat exports for a certain amount of time. People are now getting nationalistic with their resources because they want to ensure that the people in their countries have enough of whatever, especially food. I mean, I'm still on this idea that we're going to uh, have food shortages. We're going to have tremendous increases in food prices. It's already happened on the UN food World Food Index, we've already made all-time highs. We're well past the point that has led to uh, unrest, political unrest around the world. We're seeing it already in several countries. It's not being shown like it should, but we've shown it here on the uh, on this channel, Sri Lanka, Peru, other countries. And now people are starting to you know panic. This is what people do. They start hoarding, right? So India banning wheat exports due to heat wave will be net importer this year. U.S. 69% of production of this is winter wheat, I think, production experiencing drought. Ukraine, no exports due to war. I did see some planting going on in Ukraine. I don't know what the percentage of the total is, but there were some areas that uh, were, are not affected by the war. But how, how are you going to export it? Because they're, you know, with the exception of Odessa, all the other ports on the Black Sea are closed. And then, of course, the Russians are not going to let any ships dock there and take the uh, weed away. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. But like, again, yeah, this is all more discombobulation of the supply chains. Um, and then you ladder on, you know, what's going on in China now with the lockdowns in Shanghai and these other places, which seem to be easing now. But again, we have this tailwinds and headwinds. And what are the headwinds of, you know, uh, monetary policy going to be able to be overcome by, you know, some of these supply disruptions that cause prices to go up. I don't know. That's why we monitor it week to week and, and have these conversations. It's, it's just completely, these are complete unknowns at this point. I mean, I do think that food and energy still have a lot of uh, room to, 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 to the upside just because we're making deliberate decisions to make these issues worse. And they are so essential. I mean, you can go for a couple of years without, you know, making infrastructure improvements to your electrical system and thereby, you know, reducing your need for copper. But everybody's got to have a certain amount of calories a day. And that requires energy to do that. So, um, you know, energy man demand is inelastic. So we're fairly inelastic food. You either get enough food or you die. So this is, I still think, has upside. And so here was a uh, call made uh, by a the Samantha LaDuke. I mean, I guess she's been pretty good at uh, some of her calls, but um, I'll put a link to the article. But one of the um, things she's saying is $160 oil by the summer and $260 within a year. That's kind of consistent with 
other folks that I'm that I respect are kind of thinking the same way. I, I'm not sure we can get to 260. I just think the economy breaks before you get there. Can I see a run up to 150, 160 by the end of the summer? Absolutely. Like I said, this may be the last hurrah this summer of the U.S. consumer. Um, you know, credit card usage is exploding. Uh, I don't know if that's compensate for uh, the inflation. But I, like I said, a lot of people that I know that I talk to and I, you know, it's just anecdotal, of course, everybody's going somewhere. Everybody wants to travel. Everybody wants to go do something fun. So I think you're going to have a tremendous travel season. And uh, that, and just, you know, hopefully by China coming back online by then, things are going to kind of, like I said, have the potential to all come together for a spike in the oil price. And I think uh, a spike to 160 or above, something like that, I'll be looking to take profits in the, in the, in the short term. So uh, we'll just have to see how it plays out. But uh, the best thing would be is if oil just stayed, you know, around between 90 and 100 for the next three years. And we would that would be better for producers and consumers. But uh, I don't think that that's going to happen just because of the effect. You know, when you're in this world war that we're now in, and it's not going to be like World War II or anything like that. It's not probably not going to be a nuclear war. It's going to be these proxy wars and this as this unipolar world begins to collapse and the multipolar world uh, uh, comes to fruition, there's going to be a lot of conflict. There's going to be a lot of sanctioning. There's going to be a lot of, basically what you're going to be doing is a lot of disruption of the efficiencies that we realized during globalism that are now going to get undone. And that's going to cause supply disruptions and price increases. That's, that's kind of my theory. 260 within a year, I don't know. Anything can happen. Uh, these Europeans seem just fixated on completely getting off Russian energy, which they do not have the requisite um, backup supply because that's taken away from somebody else's supply. Then that's where the price increases are going to come. So uh, I don't know what's going to happen, but uh, it just seems to me that you're going to, when you have, when you just basically blow up this efficient system that you've created of just-in-time inventory and everybody's doing things the most efficiently they can through pipelines or whatever, making these deals and then you have to like you know bring crude all the way in vlccs all the way around africa or through the suez to europe uh that raises the price I mean, it's just that simple so this was interesting um i don't know if you can see this but uh alexander stahill i like to follow him he's a swiss money manager he's been pretty pretty spot on um He's talking about how oversold Brazil is right now on sediment and technicals, which uh, has happened in the past. And when we've got to these low levels of sediment, as you can see here, where these red dots are indicated, uh, three out of those four times, uh, we've had very, very nice returns. And so we're in a similar situation where we're down at levels in the past where probabilities have shown that Brazil has really performed very nicely uh, from this spot. And what do I mean? Here's the uh, dates, right? Here's the trade date um, where you made those sediment decreases. And then you look like a year out or six months to a year, you've had, let's see, there's one, two, three, four. Um, we're on the, uh, the fifth and sixth indicators now, but we've seen that, you know, four out of five, four out of five times, we've had pretty, pretty decent returns a year later. So not sure if that's going to work out, but I think it's something to pay attention to. I mean, you can see right here, the low here, then you see the run. This chart doesn't do as much service to it, but it's 
it's kind of interesting. And then you see um, uh, you know, the, where these big kind of decent runs happen. So um, something to take a look at. Uh, I thought it was interesting. You can go on uh, Twitter and look up his handle. And there's a whole thread on this. I didn't put it there. I maybe should put a link to it myself. I'll, I'll find it and put a link in the show notes. But as an intellectual exercise, it's at least interesting. Why? Brazil, obviously, is a commodity-based economy. Um, if we're going to be in a resource bull market, you know, you'd think that, okay, that, that could have positive effects on Brazil. So in the past, it has. It has worked. And, um, but, uh, you know, 75% chance, right? Uh, of course, few, previous results are not indicative of future results, but uh, it's at least something to look at. And you could, you know, you could definitely take a flyer on it with a stop loss and see what happens. And so here's a uh, Royal Dutch Shell, or they just call it Shell now, I think, oil company. And uh, this is another guy's, um, Dan, I can't pronounce his last name, but this Energy Tidbits, you can sign up for their free emails. If you go to this Twitter handle, I think up in his, uh, at the top, you can, there's a link and you can go there and I get it every week. And this guy has, they just have a tremendous amount of information on the energy markets. And this is one of the quotes they had from Shell, right? So it says, buckle up, Shell just asked of seeing demand destruction. No, quote, we see a continued increase in product demand around the world, unquote. We definitely do not see a reduction in demand. We also see, by the way, a continued decrease in investment and supply. So that's, you know, that's why it's conceivable we could have a run in oil prices to $150 or $200 a barrel. Um, and this week's energy tidbits, they had Vital, which is a major energy trader, and they said the same thing. They basically said something similar. They said, I'm um, just paraphrasing now because I just read it before I got on here, but it was something to the effect of if we don't see major demand destruction, that's the words they use, major demand destruction, then the oil price is going significantly higher. Um, there's just not enough supply out there, and there's tremendous demand for products, as we've demonstrated with jet fuel, is going to go up by like several million barrels over the next few months. And then the diesel is just in a tremendous shortage right now. So tremendous product demand, the inability again to um, uh, uh, increase uh, supply. I mean, I had lunch with Josh Young yesterday. We were talking about this and, you know, I was asking him, you know, well, right now, a lot of your oil companies, especially in the U.S., have taken this shareholder friendly um, mantra and, uh, you know, they're going to return capital. But at some point, um, you know, when, when do you think that they'll turn, you know, what price level on oil before they, you know, throw that in the garbage and start drilling again? He said, you know, he's looked at this, and he, he said kind of something similar that we've been talking about, which is it doesn't matter if you want to grow. The, 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 the crews aren't there. The rigs aren't there. The sand isn't there. The pipe isn't there. You can't just grow um, it would take a it would take a long period of time to reconcile all of these supply uh, all these impediments to new drilling. And so, I'm not going to get into specific companies, but you mentioned one company they um, I think made an acquisition or something, and they wanted to put four rigs on. They can only put one rig on because simply the supply of rigs and material and people is not there. It simply is not there. So um, this is kind of consistent with um, what people are saying across the 
across the industry and uh, we're not seeing a change of that. I mean, time and money fixes this, but does it fix it before we have the spike to $200 a barrel and the economy rolls over? I don't know. I, 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 it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. These cycles are typically multi-year cycles just because of the fact that when you have the down cycle, I, I described this before, it's like, you know, when you, uh, if you just laid in bed and took intravenous, uh, you know, food and didn't exercise, all your muscles would atrophy. You can't just get up out of bed and run the Boston Marathon if you were bedridden for six months. It would be a process of getting back your strength and getting back your muscle uh, tone and all these things and training up for that. It takes time. It's the same thing in these industries. And this is why uh, these things are so cyclical and why they have so much profit potential, because when the demand comes back, the demand always comes back quicker uh, than the supply. And we've put, like I said, we have added impediments to the supply reaction on this cycle. So uh, which seem to be now manifesting themselves in these product shortages and the supply disruptions and higher prices that we're seeing. So this is pretty good news. Um, Japan, uh, there's an article here you can uh, go to, but it's in Japanese. So I'm trusting the translation. I don't know. But basically, John Quakes talked about it. Um, he had it on his Twitter feed. Japan's business media now calling for a government policy enabling, quote, emergency restart, unquote, for 23 of its operable nuclear reactors that have not been restarted since Fukushima. Rapid reactor restarts equals sudden unanticipated uranium demand you know we've talked about this before japan you know has been slowly bringing back its reactors that were shut down at fukushima they have a lot of political uh, obviously hurdles to get over there and you know some of the ptsd around what happened at fukushima even though it wasn't really too much of a nuclear accident it was more of a tsunami causing uh, the issues but regardless the main problem of the reality is, is that, you know, it's like a, it's like a body, right? Japan, it doesn't create any of its own energy. It's landlocked. It's a island nation, has very little resources, has to import everything. And so now with LNG, they rely a lot on LNG, liquefied natural gas. They're having to compete with China and now Europe because of the bans that people want on Russian gas coming from Russia into Europe. Everybody's just thinks they're going to solve their problems by going on LNG. So you have these high prices. Uh, you know, people can see that are rational, that are making energy policy in Japan, see the fact that, look, we're not just going to have a spike in LNG and then it'll calm down and we'll be fine. They're going to have sustained prices, higher prices for LNG over the, you know, years, uh, several years at least, and until Europe builds all of these, you know, plants and then the production ramps up to supply it and more L more LNG carriers. I mean, the whole supply chain needs to be built out to accommodate this shift from the pipeline gas from Russia to Europe uh, uh, to now this LNG or whatever their plan is that they're coming up with uh, over there. And so the main thing is, is just buy cargos on the spot market and bring them here. Uh, and then you're competing with them. So, you know, for electricity production, you know, they may, they may, this may be a catalyst to restart their industry in a more rapid fashion, which of course would be unanticipated demand. We're, we've been waiting for this to happen. And we've had a reactor here and a reactor there. I think maybe eight reactors have been restarted, something like this. And so if we see a catalyst for, quicker and more numerable uh, 
restarts, uh, you know, this, what would this do to demand for uranium? I know they have a lot of uranium stockpiled there, but this is, this is just another bullish, bullish news item for uranium. You know, I, I just did an interview with uh, another podcaster and he was asking about uranium. It's like, I don't have much to say about it. Nothing's really changed on the supply demand dynamic. You have increasing demand and you, you don't have uh, the requisite supply to meet that demand. You're still drawing down uh, pounds. You have the Sprott entity in there now buying pounds. And I think it's just a matter of time, right? And of course, this industry being so small, market cap in the stocks, it's very volatile, right? And so you get the wrong impression. If the stocks are down 30%. Some of these stocks drop 30, 40%. And people are like, I'm out. But nothing's really changed in the fundamentals. That's why I tell the people, you know, if you just buy the ETF, buy on pullbacks, you're in a bull market. That's how you make money long-term in a bull market. Or just buy the physical uh, uranium when it pulls back or pu goes below net asset value. I think you do fine uh, over the next several years. And um, But uh, this is just, like I said, the, 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 the demand news just continues to get better. There's, no, there's not much to talk about on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, the fundamentals are the same as they've been, and they're getting better uh, as we go along. Uh, so um, I don't know the timing. No one can know the timing of when this thing, you know, makes a run. But, uh, you know, if you buy things, if you're enough of a contrarian to buy things when nobody else wants them, you know, like I said, I've got stocks in the portfolio that are up hundreds and hundreds of percent. Do I care if we have a 30% pullback? No, I don't care because I know <coughs> uh you know, what's going to happen longer term, well, barring a black swan event, like a, another reactor blowing up or something. But, you know, it, the hard part is, is if you don't get in on the first or second inning of this thing, and then you come in at the fifth inning or sixth inning, um, the prices are higher and you don't have, you don't have that cushion. So you buy in at the wrong time. So what happens to a lot of guys they listen to a podcast or whatever. They say, okay, I'm going to make a move into uranium. I buy the ETF. Then the thing goes down 25% over the next month and they get discouraged because again, they haven't done the research. They don't know the fundamentals. They're just relying on what some guy on the internet said or what their buddy said. That's not the way to do this. You have to understand why you're buying these things and you have to have the psychological makeup to say, this is very volatile. I mean, the entire uranium industry i don't know what the market cap is now but maybe i don't know 20 billion it's nothing you know you have stocks out there like apple that have like trillion dollar valuations tesla trillion dollar valuations who cares about this rinky dink market okay the real money hasn't even come into it yet but i think that if you understand the fundamentals and then you know you buy an initial tranche it drops 20 percent. nothing really has fundamentally changed and so you double down you buy more you know, because that's what you do in a bull market. So uh, that's about all I have to say about uh, uranium. I mean, there's not much more to say about it. So I like to report these things and they're a little skewed sometimes, but it says Ford reports losses on electric vehicle investment. So major U.S. automaker Ford blamed its sizable investment in electric vehicle company Rivian for its dramatic revenue decline in the first quarter of 2022. Ford reported revenue of 34.5 billion between March, January and March, a 5% decline relative to the same period in 2021 and a net loss of 3.1 billion according to the company's earnings report. 
The Detroit automaker said its large investment in Rivian accounted for a $5.4 billion loss during the first quarter. Quote, a net loss of $3.1 billion was primarily attributable to a mark-to-market loss of $5.4 billion on the company's investment in Rivian, Ford said in its earning report. So they own so many, like 108 million shares or something crazy of this Rivian, um, and the price of the stock drops, and so they have to market to market and, and then show it as a loss. Uh, okay, does anybody make money with these electric vehicles? We're, we're, you know, this is why I don't invest in electric vehicle companies. I don't invest in wind turbine manufacturers or solar manufacturers. If you're interested in doing that, the thing to invest in is the metals that go into it. Okay, the battery metals and things of this nature, or just copper. Why? I'm not going to try to figure out who's going to be successful or if they can even make money. I could care less. Uh, but they all need these uh, basic products for to make their products. And I think that's a better bet when you know that you have um, supply issues going forward. If they really want to push this and grow this industry and build all these electric vehicles, it doesn't matter. Sitting there trying to pick the winner is Tesla, Rivian. It doesn't, that's not, I, I don't feel that's where the money is. I think it's, you know, they all need copper. They all need nickel. They all need lithium, whatever. I think that's your best bet is to focus on those metals and the supply of them, which are all looking to be in great shortage over the next, you know, several years. And so uh, that's the point to take where it's not to dunk on Ford. I mean, I don't really know what they're doing over there. I, I don't invest in car companies, low margin business, but they all need these materials and these materials are in short supply. One thing I want to point out, I mean, this, <clears throat> I don't know what the Europeans are thinking about. They now have an all-time high for the eighth month in a row for their producer price index. Look at this thing. And this is all because of this virtue signaling. Uh, these economies in the European Union are going to, th th this virtue signaling and this Ukraine thing, I think have the potential to really rip the EU apart. And I think you're going to see it start in Eastern Europe. I mean, Viktor Orban just wrote a letter uh, last week to Ursula van der Leyen on the, you know, the president of the commission saying this energy policy that you're pursuing is ridiculous. It's has with no logic and, you know, we're not going to participate in this. And other countries are saying the same thing. Some of these countries like Austria brings in all their gas from uh, Russia. Some of these um, um, Balkan countries, okay. They're just not interested in, in tanking their economy. And, and I don't, you know, I think as, as this plays through, you see, I mean, this is like, this kind of looks like the virus chart, right? For COVID, right? I mean, that we used to point out uh, that people didn't like to look at. It's like, which one of these uh, tops is not like the others? This is a problem. I mean, this is going back to 1982. Uh, this is your producer price index peaks. And here you are, you know, six, anywhere from three to six times higher and continue to go higher. Why? Because energy, everything is a derivative of energy. And if energy prices are skyrocketing, if you're self-limiting the supply by shutting off your major supplier with no plan about how you're going to have the rest of the world supply you for this, uh, you know, basically things that you need, this is what you're going to see. You're going to see higher prices. And then the consumer is going to see higher prices. And then the political turmoil is going to begin. You know, the summer is coming and the French protest season is getting ready to start. Okay. 
now I think you're going to see it spread to other countries that don't normally uh, go to the streets and protest. You know, the French have this down as a part-time job in the summer. Uh, I'm being facetious. And I'm not picking on French people. They do protest uh, a lot of stuff. And this is crazy. People are not going to stand for this. And so I think <clears throat> if you're going to self-immolate yourself and self -re and restrict um, energy supplies from your major supplier via pipelines and then try to patch something together, some Frankenstein monster energy policy, I think you're going to have a problem. And uh, I think it's going to reverberate through the entire economy, as we said before. And I think it's going to lead to social and economic social and political upheaval people you know are not going to put up with this you know i showed you the chart and people are gonna be like look we're not going to set ourselves on fire for these people in this other country uh we're just you know it's all fine and dandy i've pointed this out before folks you can stand outside of the grocery store with a clipboard and ask people if they're if they're um for you know green energy clean energy and they'll be like yeah 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 i'm all for it blah 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 look at their little kid yeah i want a clean i want a clean environment for little shavers here and then you say okay well if your current electric bill is 200 a month and it but it, in order to have clean energy and to do what you know we're saying here it needs to go to four or five hundred they're not interested they won't even pay twenty dollars a month more okay this is some of the polling that we've seen people are fine with all this stuff as long as it doesn't cost them anything once it starts costing money, people are not interested in it anymore because people are self-interested. This is human nature. So we'll see, you know, I can't predict the future, but I, I, I would suggest to you that this type of rapid increase, you know, like I've said before, if the oil price goes from, you know, 80 to 150 over five or 10 years, people will adapt to it. You won't have turmoil. But if it goes from, you know, 80 to 150 in three or six months, you're going to have a problem, okay? You're going to have a problem economically, socially, and politically. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Uh, sorry about us being late. Uh, we'll screw up technically, but uh, we finally got it out to you. Uh, again, uh, appreciate the support. We, channel continues to grow. We're heading towards 10,000 subscribers. This is amazing. I cannot believe it when I started this thing that anybody would want to listen to this. But uh, you guys have been very, very good and generous and uh, I appreciate all the subscribers. We have quite a few Patreon supply, uh, supporters. People uh, support us on Patreon. You know, if you support us on Patreon, um, $5 or more per month, we will give you a, the last stock pick that we had in the newsletter, the most current stock pick. That's a one-shot deal, remember. It's not forever every month. It's the last stock pick as an incentive and a uh, thank you for supporting us on Patreon. So we're grateful for that. We're grateful for our subscribers and actionable intelligence alert. And uh, we're grateful for you, the viewers and the listeners on the podcast. If you could do us a favor, guys, you know, like, share, make a comment uh, on the podcasting forums, whatever you use, Spotify, whatever. If you could take the time, if you enjoy these things, uh, give us, you know, we would prefer high grades. If you want to give us one star, I think one guy said this, podcast sucks and this guy sucks or something like that i would prefer you didn't do that but some people you know i can't control what people do uh I, everybody has a view so anyways uh that would help us out greatly and be very appreciative all right guys that's it for this week we thank you and we'll talk to you next week